Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in the 1980s by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Today, DBT is taught all over the world. We're two therapists who believe everyone can benefit from DBT skills. I'm Kate. I'm Michelle. And And this this is is DBT and Me. Hello, everybody. We're having a bit of an interesting episode today. So on the one hand, a little bit of sadness. We don't have Michelle with us today. Uh, Her kiddo got sick and so didn't have childcare and... Uh, thus it is being a parent. So she's off taking care of her kiddo today. Um, on the other hand, I am not alone. I am here with a guest today. Um, we are going to be joined by Dana Lawson. I'll let her tell you more about herself in just a sec. But first, awesome self-promotion, which I'm still not used to being at the beginning. And so I keep almost forgetting. So first and foremost, thank you so much to everyone who supports us via Patreon. We do have a new patron to shout out this month. That's Chelsea. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Uh, If you'd like to get shouted out on a future episode and receive other perks, you can support us via Patreon as well at patreon.com slash dbtandme. You can also help support us by going to our Etsy shop, which you can find at etsy.com slash shop slash shop, that's easy to say, slash DBT and me, or just search for DBT and me on Etsy, which is probably easier. Uh, Yeah, give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to us. Feel free to send us emails with questions, um, ideas for future episodes, or anything else you might want to say. That is dbtandmepodcast at gmail.com. And last but certainly not least, check out our non-DBT podcast, which is The Couch and the Chair, which you can listen to wherever it is that you might be listening to my voice right now. Uh, so now that I actually referred to the self-promotion bit, Dana, why don't you tell our lovely listeners more about who you are and what you do? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, been a listener of the podcast, and I'm glad to be here to to share with your listeners today. Um, so, like you said, my name is Dana Lawson, and I'm a professional counselor associate. Um, I work in the Portland, Oregon area. Um, so I see clients uh, doing therapy and utilize DBT in my practice, um, working with clients on a number of issues ranging from anxiety, body image, emotional eating, life transitions. I work a lot with college students, um, women, um, generally helping clients find greater uh, life satisfaction and build greater self-compassion. Wonderful. Perfect. Well, when did you first come across DBT? What drew you to it? Yeah, so I, like many of us, heard about DPT peripherally in graduate school, and I was like, oh, I'm not uh-huh. much of a behavioral therapist. <laughs> I think that's Same. not really my thing. Um, and then, and not surprisingly, when I started internship, um, had exposure um, through my supervisor who um, mm-hmm. utilized DBT in her practice. And I learned a lot about it through her. And she was like, hey, I think you should run this group. Um, what do you think about taking on a group for DBT for emotional eating using um, a curriculum mm-hmm. that um, yeah. she had found? And I was like, well, sure, I guess the best way to learn something is to teach it to other people. Um And then I started to really just find so much value in um, using DBT as a modality 
um, and learning from somebody who'd used it um, with a lot of different clients. So um, I was really exposed to it during my internship and then have since, yeah, just done some additional training and seen it be so valuable um, for uh, my clients. Awesome. Right. I love that switch that can come about of like, that's not going to be for me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, well, maybe. I even went through DBT before grad school and I still was a little like hinky about it just because I was not very into the behavioral techniques. So I'm with you on that one. Um, Yeah. What then do you love about it? What's your favorite thing about DBT? What might you change? What might be your least favorite thing about DBT? Yeah. Well, I love how practical, accessible, and logical it is. Like it just Mm -hmm. makes sense. And it's um, in such a amazing package. Like it's just wrapped up so well in like the different modules Mm -hmm. and in language that makes sense for people. And so it just feels like it's a really um, logical uh, treatment for a lot of people. Like, okay, I can really apply this to my daily life. Um, I love how um, it's useful for anyone um, and how it resonates with so many people. Um, so I love that part of it. I think the the thing that I wish I could change about it is, like I even just mentioned my own bias about it before, there is this stigma around yeah. maybe more behavioral treatments or because it was originally formulated for, you know, use with borderline personality mm-hmm. disorder that people think, oh, that's, that's not for me. I don't struggle with that. Yeah. Therefore that must not be something that I could benefit from. Um, but I think anyone can benefit from the DBT tools that are available. So I wish there was more awareness of just how um, applicable the tools are across the board, even if you don't struggle necessarily with your mental health, all of these tools can be applied in so many different ways. Um, So yeah, that's probably what I would change. I love that answer. Yeah, Michelle and I believe the same thing very strongly, right? That this could be utilized by absolutely everyone. Uh, My used to be a joke, but now I'm like, I don't know, what can't I do in the world? Maybe I can get, maybe I can make this happen too. Uh, I jokingly say that DBT belongs in middle schools, right? That we ought to just be teaching (laughs) teenagers DBT. Uh, My God, would my life have been better if I got those skills at that age. I totally agree. It's like basic life skills training, like how to feel your feelings and cope. And so much of it is so helpful. I use it, yeah, different things with my toddlers. I'm like, you know, I have a six-year-old and a -a three-and-a-half-year-old. I'm like, yes, let's talk about mindfulness and grounding and naming our emotions, labeling things. I'm like, this is, yeah, we all needed this, yeah, from a very young age and I, yeah, yeah definitely agree with you but there is that stigma right of of well dbt is only for crazy people right mm-hmm. <laughs> like if, I, if i'm not broken or crazy right all those horrible words that people like to throw around in the stigma of mental health yeah um at each other and at themselves right yeah. um or to dismiss their own needs right if i'm not mm-hmm. that bad then whatever so no i i agree it'd be nice if it could ditch some of its history <laughs> Mm-hmm, definitely <laughs> such that it was more more accessible um even so right it's already yeah. pretty dang accessible but i think it can always be more so yeah definitely. um well tell me more about emotional eating uh how do you define it uh what makes it distinct from eating disorders yeah definitely great question so yeah there's definitely a big distinction between emotional eating and a clinical 
um, diagnosed eating disorder. So um, generally we're looking at with emotional eating, a link between distressing emotions and using food to cope um, with those distressing emotions. Um, you know, eating disorder is really different in that it's a severe and persistent disturbance. It's a very serious condition affecting physical, psychological, and social functioning. Um, So we're talking about eating disorders that are, you know, in the DSM um, that clinicians are diagnosing, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. Those are eating disorders versus emotional eating is like, yeah, I may, maybe I turn to food um, Mm. to deal with difficult emotions. And it's a learned behavior um, used for coping when things get hard and when things are uncomfortable. Um, so that's kind of the, the difference. Um, I want to dull, avoid difficult Mm -hmm. feelings. And so I turn to food and that, that's also a normal part of life. I don't want to say that, um, you know, occasionally (laughs) if you, you know, are feeling kind of low or went through a bad breakup, like having some ice cream or some chocolates, like that's not what we're talking about here. Food is really comforting and uh, to be enjoyed and is a part of our emotional experience. But it's when someone feels like they are consistently turning to food to cope, have lost control and are not feeling satisfied with their relationship with food um, and um, have kind of lost that trust. Um, So so yeah, I also just want to add in a caveat too, um, because there is some, there's emotional eating even has some charge to it that there is some, yeah. um, you know, discussion in the field about whether that's even an appropriate term to use. And so I just want to name that, that it's still kind of messy even using that term. Yeah. And and I very much practice from a health at every size and intuitive eating lens. And so wherever there is, um severe restriction um, or even restriction at all or um, a focus on weight loss or um, Mm -hmm. diet culture. I'm really curious about those aspects before even looking at emotional eating. Um, So with clients, I would be looking at, you know, are we targeting emotional eating because we're trying to lose weight? Um, Then that's not, you know, particularly appropriate. It's not about body (laughs) size and trying to change what we look like. Um, And health looks different for every, every body, every person. Um, So uh, it's it's looking at more health and well-being and your relationship and the trust that you have with food than looking at um, trying to focus on weight or body um, changes and things like that. Yeah, so it sounds like this really is most of a, like, you know, the broad range of eating disorders includes both more of and less of food intake, whereas emotional eating is almost strictly food intake, like additional and emotionally based. Am I hearing that basically right? Yeah, yeah. Emotional eating, turning to food to cope with exactly. difficult things. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But it, you're right. You we know. do it all the time. There wouldn't be the term comfort food, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> weren't at least occasionally uh, something that makes sense, but I can, I can appreciate um, not wanting it as sort of a closer to behavioral addiction or something like that where it's yeah um, causing those sorts of problems um, totally you could see yeah. it like i'm turning to alcohol or turning to mm-hmm. something else instead of sitting with the feelings and emotions yes yeah. yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah no that makes a lot of sense um and i can see uh probably how dbt is suited to that but why do you think dbt is especially suited for folks who struggle with emotional eating how do you see those as being 
well linked. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, DBT is a program that focuses so primarily on the link between emotional dysregulation and emotional eating. So it's such a great connection to really dig into those emotions and it teaches specific skills and strategies to help cope with difficult emotions without turning to food. So it's it's really fantastic. Um, it's also very evidence-based. Um, the mm-hmm. curriculum that we use is, I'm looking around for it, um, the, DBT, <laughs> the DBT solution for emotional eating um, by oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Dr. Deborah Safer, Sarah Adler, and Philip Mason, for anyone who's interested in the curriculum that I've used for groups. And it is it has been clinically proven, well-researched. Um, so I think it's great because we have research that shows that it has been effective. Um, and I love that DBT incorporates dialectical thinking, um, with Mm -hmm. food, there is so much, um, baggage from diet culture that we all carry that is very rules oriented, very rigid. And with DBT, encouraging a really flexible mindset that enables you to Mm -hmm. hold contradictory viewpoints simultaneously, like it's such a perfect um, opportunity for clients to grow in their ability to think dialectically and um, want to change and accept (laughs) themselves as they are in the present moment, um, which is so counter to our society and culture, especially diet culture that says you have to change, you have to do this, you have to follow these rules. If you do this, then this will happen, which is so confusing and impossible um, to to do. So I feel like the ability to think dialectically and have greater flexibility is so beneficial um, to anyone who struggles um, with emotional eating. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think that despite the fact that it's in the name, even I'm guilty occasionally of of not focusing in on how much dialectics is at the heart of DBT. Yeah. uh, And how much benefit you can get in life just from leaning more into into dialectics and dialectical Mm -hmm. thinking. Absolutely. I love naming that for my clients, like both and both of those things can be true and you can Mm -hmm. want to change and be okay with who you are right now. Um, It's, you know, it's, it's a really hard skill, but such an important mindset shift. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Right. I think it's one of those things that sounds obvious or intuitive or something like that, but actually when the rubber hits the road, it can be a really hard thing, um, really hard thinking shift to make. Um, are there some like DBT skills that you think uh, folks who struggle with emotional eating maybe need to focus on the most uh, or even on the other side of it, some skills that don't seem to be as useful for this particular population? Yeah, um, good question. Yeah, I mean, I would say the emotion regulation skills, like all of them can be extremely <laughs> helpful. So, yeah. you know, awareness of the current emotion that you're experiencing, really observing that. Um, I think recognizing ways to become less vulnerable to uncomfortable emotions. So yeah, if you're really, you know, if you're really tired or you're really sick, like you may turn to food um, in those moments because you're vulnerable and you're hungry. You need to, you know, satisfy those needs. But um, are there ways that you can um, be less vulnerable in those moments, paying attention to it? Um, I think mindfulness is huge. Um, we can tend to be really mindless in our relationship with food, um, where we've lost a lot of trust with our bodies and paying attention to 
hunger and fullness cues and um, a lot of the intuitive eating principles have you practice a lot of greater mindfulness with um, your relationship yeah. with food. A diet culture really takes us out of mindfulness um, mm -hmm. and to uh, ignore when we're hungry, um, what, what feels good for our bodies, what we need in that moment. Um, so I think mindfulness is huge. Um, one of my favorite tools that we do at the beginning of the group is really digging into a behavioral chain analysis with mm -hmm. clients. And so um, a lot of um, my clients look back and they're like, wow, I, that is so insightful to look. This is usually the link. Like this is the spot where this happens for me. Like I had a bad day at work and I didn't have a tool um, or a way to manage that. And so I turned to food or, you know, when my husband says, X, Y, and Z, that's really invalidating. And I want to turn um, to food in that moment instead of, you know, having a hard conversation or sitting with those emotions. So really looking at what are the behavioral steps that happen along the way and, um, yeah. you know, the activating events, the triggers, the things that happen, and what are the consequences of that? How do I really feel? So we love, um, going through the behavioral chain analysis. And I think it's so uh, great to do in a group too, because yeah. there's so much um, commonality. Um, a lot a lot of the participants are like, oh, that's where it happens for me too. And it looks, I, I'm not alone in feeling this way. So I love behavioral chain analysis. Um, a lot of clients love um, urge surfing has been really helpful. Ah, um, just ride being, the wave. Yeah, yeah, riding the wave, like feeling some of that. Um, okay, this will pass. I can get through this. And when they even hear that, like generally riding it out for 20 minutes, like, oh, I can, and not ignoring I'm hungry and I want to eat. Not about that, but like the painful emotion um, yeah. in the moment, um, it will dissipate and I, I can get through this if I can just ride it out long enough. Um, and then radical acceptance, um, particularly with like, you know, leaning into body image and yeah. um, just accepting who, who I am. And, um, you know, we even just aiming for body neutrality, not even like body positivity, but can I just accept that this is my body today? And I may want to change certain things, but can I accept that this is the body that I'm in today? And um, maybe work toward a little bit of positivity or, or acceptance or, or radical self-love mm -hmm. too. Um, and then cope ahead. Um, that This is a super helpful skill, especially I've run uh, this group. I love cope ahead. Yeah, I've run this group a lot around um, holidays that tend to be triggering mm. for clients around food. Yeah. So Thanksgiving, um, Christmas holidays for those who celebrate that. And that those are awesome opportunities for clients to really dig into, okay, these are the things that I know are going to be difficult for me. Um, I want to practice the following skills when this comes up. Yeah. Um and also challenging some of those narratives that clients have about like, I can't eat certain things because mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, it, of how many calories it might be or what the ingredients are. And like, no, like, it's also a lot of giving permission to think dialectically, yeah. like I can um, enjoy these things and be flexible in a way that um, many folks who struggled with their relationship with food haven't felt that they could be. So I love, yeah, love Cope Ahead. To answer the other part of your question, like I just don't really, I had a hard time even thinking of skills that clients <laughs> should not use, um, <laughs> especially with this, I mean, the curriculum is really oriented toward this particular issue. And so yeah. all of them in there are great and have been tested. Um, 
but I really can't think um, of too many that couldn't be helpful uh, in That's this fair. regard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to know when it's like, yeah, whether there's some that, I didn't know if maybe like clients rejected any skills, like if mm. there were any skills that the clients in your groups were like, Meh. That's yeah, not do that for me. But I mean, most people find something useful in most skills. I would totally. say. So, I would say like sense. the one that it always feels funny to teach, um, and that clients are like, oh, I don't know. I mean, and people kind of eventually get on board, but half smiling always feels funny. Like yeah. half smiling, willing hands, like things that have clients go a bit out of their comfort zone um, mm-hmm. physically can feel. Um, kind of, you know, funny. So people are like, oh, I don't know if I see myself doing this one so much. Um, but yeah, in terms of like other resistance or things like that. Um, I mean, I think some of the, we, we not directly DBT oriented, but we do bring mm-hmm. in um, education around health at every size and intuitive eating. Um, and for a lot of clients, it's such a paradigm shift that it's like, yeah. wait, what? Like, weight loss isn't the goal and I should be happy or I, you know, I'm working on accepting myself as I am. Like it's really challenging the presence of diet culture and all of these things. And that exercise is about, you know, joyful movement instead of Mm. like punishing myself for something I ate last night or to try to change parts of my body. Like people often have a hard time, like just wrapping their mind around, this is counterculture to everything that has been taught to me from a young age. And it it's one of my favorite parts of teaching the group is like not even necessarily all the DBT, but like the mindset shift that comes where it's like, oh my gosh, like I can live my life in a different way. I don't have to be, um, uh, you know, I don't have to live my life in the throes of diet culture. I can choose a different way and it's really hard um but it's mm-hmm. really liberating for um clients who are like yeah i'm not i'm not gonna do this anymore um i'm not gonna let diet culture like steal my life and my my happiness yeah. um and that's pretty cool to see happen that does sound very rewarding yeah you're talking a lot about um like diet culture and also i think it was your answer maybe the second or third question it just looped back into my brain a little bit but um i I can imagine it being difficult in your position to sort out some of the motivation for things or for desires to change since you were talking Mm -hmm. about like not trying to come from stopping the emotional eating in order to achieve weight loss, right? Or Mm -hmm. other sort of diet oriented skills, but coming from a place of wellness as opposed to, um, yeah, weight loss. (laughs) Um, I imagine that for both the clients and for you, that that's a struggle to sort out where motivation is coming from um, Mm -hmm. and that that paradigm shift is a big part of trying to lean into it coming from a more healthy and well place. Yeah, it is really hard. And I I think we kind of accept where people are in that moment of like, well, you're here Mm -hmm. and we can share this with you. And it's a journey for all of us, really. I mean, we've all lived within diet culture. And so it's a really radical shift. And if we can plant some seeds and, um, and we definitely share like this is not about weight loss. If you're here for weight loss, this is not the group for you. I mean, you're welcome to be here. Yeah. And like, this is not um, the lens that we're practicing from or encouraging. Um, and, you know, is, could it happen possibly, but that's not the, not the goal and what you should be yeah. expecting or leaning into 
Um, so yeah, it's really challenging to sift out some of that, that motivation. Um, but everybody's on their own journey and we, you know, want to plant seeds where we can and support, um, clients uh, along the way. Makes sense. Right. You just got to get them to radically accept the health at every size theory. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to it. I'm sure it's just a piece of cake, right? Just a snap away. (laughs) Let's just disown everything we've ever been told. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. No, that's a huge, it's a huge shift. It's a difficult one. Um, Well, you know, just thinking about dialectics and everything else that we've been talking about, uh, right? It's I think probably we all know that people can get pretty caught up in black and white thinking around food. Mm-hmm. Um, what's like, how do you most use dialectical thinking to help your clients get out of that like dichotomy around food? Yeah. Yeah. So much black and white thinking. Um, so I, I start with um, challenging, assigning moral value to food and saying mm. like food is food. Um Encouraging clients to practice having a non-judgmental stance. And there's so much Mm -hmm. judgment and shame related to food, again, wrapped up in diet culture um, and really digging into like that food does not have moral value. Um, It is not inherently good or bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, food is part of the human experience. Like we need food to survive. We need a variety of foods, um, foods that, you know, some people might consider bad or unhealthy, like also have a purpose. Like they, you know, are still nutritious and we need food to eat, you know, different nutrients. So really taking away this black and white thinking around these are good foods and bad foods. Um, in intuitive eating, it's really um, challenging the, it's the principle of challenging the food police. So whenever mm-hmm. we hear, you know, conversations around, well, this is good or bad or what food rules are present, Um, for Mm. clients is like really trying to get out of black and white thinking and think more flexibly about the food that you're eating. Um, So that's, that's a huge part of it is encouraging dialectical thinking around what, what value food has in in our lives. I love that. Yeah, it can be considered bad by our culture and still have nutritional value. Right. Totally. And we have an important place to play. Yeah. Yeah. And sense. I mean, the the bad or I mean, a lot of I think reminding ourselves that um, not to get uh, too intense, but like there's a lot of capitalism, a lot of money to be oh, sure. made by oh, us yes. thinking that certain foods are good versus bad. I mean, think about all the marketing toward um, certain foods and diets and um, so much money. I mean, it's a bazillion dollar. I can't remember the statistic right now, but industry diet it's culture huge. is it's huge. Yeah. And um, that 95% of diets result in weight gain. Um, they fail. And so if there was a treatment that you went to your doctor and they said, well, I'm going to recommend that you do this. It, it only succeeds like 5% of the time. Um, like, right. you You'd be do like, it? Uh... Right. You'd be like, no thanks. That doesn't sound very promising. Like your, your odds are not very good. Um, and it's not a problem with you as a person. It's a problem with diet culture that it's making promises that cannot be kept um, because they're not scientifically real. based and they're not real. And it's to keep you, they fail on purpose so they can keep having you mm-hmm. coming back to spend more money on diets and on different foods yep. that are, you know, are gonna help you lose weight and achieve this body ideal that is not possible, um, nor is it healthy. So, um, I, so much um, education 
um, is is needed to really challenge some of this like dialectical thinking um, yeah. or encourage the dialectical thinking in the moment. Um, and, and I think when people realize that they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Or when you put it that way, yeah. I can, I can see this really differently. There's a huge amount of capitalism in food. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I mean, totally yeah. to call that out. Right. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, you grow up it with it. So it doesn't seem so weird until you really pause to think about things like food groups, having slogans. Right. Yeah. Right? Dot milk beef it's what's for dinner right mm-hmm. you're like why does a whole food group have a slogan that's weird right? yeah. <laughs> like how much more capitalistic can you get than to have food basically totally. have a jingle right or like and not like a restaurant you know, yeah. but a food <laughs> and food groups that like slam each other you know it's like one time you know sometimes oh, they're yeah. good you know just to, to make money more for their food group or food brand or whatever yeah oh no yeah. yeah it's so much money in it and so much money in keeping you buying different things and yeah, yeah. no absolutely um it's just all intertwined and it's just so hard to undo messaging that yeah we've been given for so long so it's really great work yeah. that you're doing if a tough hill to climb i'm sure it is um, but yeah, Dana, if you just want to, I don't know, promote yourself or your business or any other, if there's books you really love that you think people ought to check out, this is really any space you want to oh. to, to promote stuff that you believe in or that you think people ought to check out. Cool. Well, thanks. Well, like I said, I'm a, a therapist um, in the Portland area. I work at Dr. Sanderson and Associates. Um, we're a group private practice, um, and we see um, range of clients and, and presenting concerns and have a bunch of members on our team that um, are amazing and great clinicians if you're in the in the state of Oregon and looking for, for therapy. And we take a bunch of different insurance panels as well. Um, and I'm hopefully starting my own private practice part-time in the new year. So um, hopefully I'll be out there uh, additionally as a, a solo practitioner before too long. So uh, TBD, more info about that. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I don't have any particular like social media or presence outside of my um, group private practice right now. But we are on uh, Facebook and Instagram, Dr. Sanderson and Associates. Um, in terms of other resources, like I said, the DBT solution for emotional eating is great. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely recommend that as a workbook and it's a great workbook to work through with a therapist or on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been researched both as kind of a self-help uh, tool if you want to practice it on your own. Um, but I think it can be great to do alongside a therapist or even another friend or a group of friends. Yeah. Um, but as far as diet culture, which I think goes really hand in hand with working on some of this, um, you know, DBT for emotional eating. My favorite books, I love Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison, um, uh, Sonia Renee Taylor's work, um, The Body is Not an Apology is amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I love her work. Um, what else is behind me? Um, the Fuck It Diet by uh, <laughs> Carolyn Donner is great. Um and let's see, I just read um, The Wisdom of Your Body by uh, Hilary mm. McBride was great. Um, and the intuitive eating um, book is great, going deeper into those principles. And then I love self-compassion as a great complement mm. to the work of 
um, healing your relationship with your body and food and um, within DBT. I mean, I bring self-compassion into all of my work. So any of yeah. uh, Dr. Kristen Neff's work and Dr. Chris Germer's work, um, any books on self-compassion, the self-compassion workbook, um, self-compassion brings in a lot of mindfulness too, which is yeah. directly connected to what we do in DBT. Um, but I think we can all really benefit from greater self-compassion. So anything on self-compassion. Right. <laughs> um, and I love, there's so, there's so much great anti-diet uh, work out there. People who are doing this, um, leading podcasts, Chrissy Harrison um, has a great podcast called Food Psych. Um, so many amazing oh. influencers on Instagram yeah. that are, I would say, as much as you can listen to, read, and look at anti-diet uh, content in your life, especially as you're scrolling on your Instagram feed or mm -hmm. any whatever social media you're on TikTok, because um, diet culture is out there. You're going to you know, see oh, yes. so much of it. It's hard to escape. So we need to infiltrate what we're seeing with other perspectives about what um, bodies look like, what health is, mm -hmm. um, challenging diet stuff, and get get rid of the stuff that's not serving you. Um, is, is my advice too. Like, if it triggers you to see um, certain, you know, bodies or diets or things glorified, get get it out of your feed. Like, you can choose not to see a lot of that. Um, we can't avoid all of it, but um, yeah say see you later to a lot of it so yeah so those are some of my my favorite resources or tips um but awesome. there's a ton out there and um yeah i am definitely just very passionate about helping um folks find greater um peace with their bodies and food and i think um mm. all of these resources can be a great way to do that yeah that's wonderful stuff and yeah i love self-compassion also um yes. big big fan of mindful self-compassion work so Love it. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Well, I think that takes us just about to the end. Before I launch into closing moment, a couple of quick things. Uh, one, another listener of ours uh, is over in the UK and is helping to run a study. And we did let her know that we would let our listeners know. So um, Charlotte Harding, a trainee clinical psychologist over there in the UK, is running a study, um, the aim of which is to explore the lived experience of lesbian and gay folks, uh, yeah, what their experience was of completing a full program of DBT. Um, so folks in the, if you're interested, if you live in the UK, <laughs> uh, if you identify as lesbian and gay, live in the UK, um, and you need to have a UK general practitioner, that said, you don't have to have completed your DBT in the UK. You can have done that part anywhere. Um, but if you're interested, uh, you can reach out to them at L as in lesbian, G as in gay, D as in dialectical, B as in behavior, and T as in therapy. Uh, so LGDBT, almost all of the sounds are the same. <laughs> it's like all the letters you can mix up with each other. Um, at manchester.ac.uk for more information. Uh, and if some of that just went past you, you can definitely just email um, Michelle and I and we can put you in touch with the correct folks. So wanted to put that quickly in there. Also, I realized just now that I was going to tell folks to grab something before closing moment or more to the point before the whole podcast started. So uh, in alignment with that, um, I will say... If you have the opportunity to do so, wherever it is that you are in your universe, 
if you could go and grab something small and relatively easy to eat, that would be amazing. You can pause me right here and go and get your food. <laughs> All right, go get it. Excellent. Okay, hopefully those of you who needed it paused, because I didn't pause for nearly long enough for anybody to go get anything. Um, so we're going to work on, perhaps unsurprisingly, mindful eating today as the closing moment before I launch into the actual instructions so you don't accidentally, uh, let's say, get ahead of yourself before <laughs> realizing you're not supposed to do something, which I know happens because that's what happened the first time someone tried to lead me in mindful eating. Ha <laughs> um, <laughs> Basically, what the instructions are going to look like is to try and interact with the food in a really mindful way. And what that's going to look like in part is making sure that you don't just chew and swallow really fast as soon as it gets in your mouth, which is sort of what I did the first time. And then they're like, continue chewing. I was like, I already swallowed the food. <laughs> um, and I felt very awkward about it. <laughs> so <laughs> just... A little sneak preview, you're going to spend some time masticating, right? Chewing on that food, experiencing it. Um, so don't rush through uh, to swallow the food down, or you might be left um, feeling slightly embarrassed like I did. <laughs> so that's your preview. Hopefully uh, anybody who wants to participate in this has already grabbed their food. So go ahead and set that in front of you. And before we launch into that, uh, we're going to get into a mindful state just like we always do. So start by getting into a comfortable position for yourself, you know, adjusting your body as it feels like it needs to be comfortable. And if you feel safe and comfortable doing so, I invite you to go ahead and close your eyes. To begin with, we're just going to notice our breath. You don't need to breathe any more slowly or any more deeply than you do naturally. It's just about tuning in just about paying attention and noticing the rhythm and the sensations of your breath and letting them welcome you into your body and into the present moment. All right, so you can open your eyes now and begin by taking the piece of food that you have and if it's not going to melt or otherwise fall apart, hold it in your hand. We're just going to begin by mindfully observing the food before we even take a bite of it. Let's try and notice whatever you're holding really carefully. You might pretend that you're a child who's never seen this food before or an alien, right? Just trying to really observe, noticing different shapes, surfaces, textures, colors. If it's something that you can touch and move around in your hand, you might even notice how it feels to your fingertips, right? Just any data that you can notice about it by just looking, just touching the food. During this process, of course, while you're observing, try to be aware of any thoughts that come into your mind about the food or about eating, right? Non-judgmentally, just noticing what comes up. 
Now, go ahead and bring whatever food you have up to your nose and really smell it. Try to fully immerse yourself in that breath and in that experience of the smell of your food. Now, finally, you can go ahead and put whatever you've brought into your mouth. Try to be aware of your mouth as you do this. Try to be aware of your tongue. Work on experiencing the taste of your food by chewing it very slowly, very deliberately. You can notice the texture on your tongue or the roof of your mouth. Notice how much resistance there is when you bite down. Also noticing, still, whatever thoughts or feelings might be coming up. Noticing any impulses to swallow the food. And just taking your time to fully appreciate it as much as possible. Finally, when you're ready, you can swallow the food, trying to notice the taste of it for as long as you can as it goes down your throat. Trying to observe the entirety of the experience of eating this piece of food. Okay, if you close your eyes one more time before we're ending, I just want you to notice for yourself what that was like. Just check in on your being. Did mindful eating help you feel relaxed? Did it help you feel curious? Did it cause you to feel anxious? Overly aware of eating? What were your thoughts like? What emotions came up? Just taking a moment here to notice what that was like and Think about how you might incorporate it moving forward in your world, even if it's just the first bite of any given meal. See what slowing down and mindful eating might have to offer you. But for now, I invite you to take one or two slow, deep breaths, letting go of the experience of your food and coming back into the rest of your body. You might rotate your wrists, shoulders, neck ankles, whatever feels good and right in your body. And whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and open your eyes again. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll talk to you next month. To learn more about us and the DBT skills we're teaching each week, join our Facebook group. Simply log in to your Facebook profile and search for DBT and Me Podcast.